Um, my name is Rabia Atayi. I'm a um, pharmacist who works in the palliative care setting at um, UC San Diego. Um, I'm also at the School of Pharmacy there um, and uh, practice as the associate dean and associate faculty there. Um, and this morning, I am joined with my colleague from Roosevelt University in Chicago, Dr. Cara Brock, and I'll have um, Dr. Brock introduce herself when she comes up. Um, we will be taking turns coming up um, with the four different alternative routes of therapy um, as we speak about them. Um, and um, as our title says, what's your preference? Up your butt, under your tongue, or through your skin? Um, we will be asking that question at the end of the talk, um, and you can participate with a show of hands. So stay tuned. We, neither of us, have anything to disclose. Um, so we will be talking about the four different routes, including rectal, sublingual, subcutaneous, and topical routes, alternative to the oral and intravenous route. We'll be talking about opioid pharmacology administered through this route. We'll be talking about the evidence of efficacy and safety in the literature um, of these routes. And then what we hope to do is discuss the pros and cons of gathering what's in the literature, but also in clinical practice in the settings of pain, palliative care, and hospice. Now, as you may have guessed, that most of the literature is going to be on morphine, so that will be the focus of our discussion, morphine administered through these various routes, um, but we will also present any literature that exists on the other um, opioids. So I mean this in the nicest way at 7 in the morning when I say, what about up your butt? And we'll start with the case. MB is a 68-year-old male with metastatic adenocarcinoma of the colon who presents to the ED with three days of vomiting and abdominal pain determined and determined to have a partial bowel obstruction. The ED staff is unable to secure an IV line, and MB is unable to take oral meds. Current opioid regimen includes MS content or morphine-sustained release 60 milligrams POQ12 and morphine-immediate release 15 milligrams, um, and the patient is instructed to take every two hours as needed for pain. So we'll come back to that case, but this might be a case where we can consider the rectal route. Um, and in doing so, it's in patients who have nausea, vomiting, um, unable to swallow, bowel obstruction, and any suspicion of malabsorption. The rectal route can also be considered an alternative to the subcutaneous route, and if you're not familiar with it, we'll be discussing it later on in the presentation. Um, and with the subcutaneous route, what's crucial is that you have to be able to find subcutaneous space that you can insert a needle in. So if you can't find that insertion site because of severe bleeding disorders, generalized edema, um, then that you would need to look for an alternative route. So in discussing the rectal route and um, mostly focusing on morphine um, pharmacology, um, as you can imagine, there is a lot of high inter-individual uh, variation when morphine is administered through the rectal route, um, especially in the bioavailability. And this, there's a lot of different factors that will impact this, including the site of insertion, um, the preparation of the medication, or the pH of the solution of the medication, and the presence of any feces. As you can imagine, presence of anything would decrease the absorption and barrier. Um, what's really important to note with the rectal route, as most of you may be aware, is that if the medication is inserted in the lower rectum, 
um, then you avoid first pass metabolism um, with this route. Um, so when you start to say, okay, I'm gonna uh, convert my patient from an oral med to rectal, what's the conversion? And a starting point would be one to one. Um, but keeping in mind that the studies have shown that even though we do dose at one to one, the morphine, when it was the morphine IR and the morphine suppository that were administered rectally, they did have a faster onset of action and a longer duration of efficacy. Um, so again, that might be due to the first path, avoiding the first pass metabolism. And then what about the sustained release formulation? So when sustained release oral morphine formulations were administered rectally, this has been proven to be safe and effective in the literature. Um, and the literature did also note with the sustained release that the hydration um, of that area is highly dependent. So if a patient, um, and you'll know that if the patient says that the um, drug that's administered is not dissolving. Um, and a easy way to get around that is to administer a small amount of water um, after the suppository has been inserted. So again, when you want to convert from oral morphine sustained release to rectal um, morphine sustained release, you do start with one-to-one -one as a starting point. But there's been several literature that has shown that um, patients will uh, report increased efficacy with the rectal route if they were, you know, if it was the same dose, and they'll report more drowsiness um, with the rectal route administration. So that with some caution that you may need to decrease the dose. Um, so hydromorphone and morphine are commercially available. Um, maybe we'll wait for questions at the end, if you don't mind. Um, Hydromorphone and morphone are commercially available for the rectal administration and um, as suppositories. But any tablet can be given or any pill can be given rectally. And so that's a really nice thing that I've taken advantage of over the last 10 years as a palliative care pharmacist. Um, and the main thing about these suppository formulations or enema formulations is that they do help with the retention. So if that is an issue, um, then you can have it be compounded where these um, pills or tablets can be in micro gels um, to help with the retention, or any oral elixir can be put into micro enemas. So that can be um, done through compounding. Um, but in a, you know, aside from that, um, other opioids that can be administered rectally just in the tablet form is methadone, oxycodone, codeine, and tramadol, and they've shown to have good bioavailability. So overall, the benefits of the rectal route is that it is an alternative. It is a feasible alternative to oral IV, and even in some cases, sub-Q route, um, if, those aren't, if those are contraindicated or not feasible. It's really inexpensive. I mean, it's the medication itself. You don't have to worry about a pump as you would with the subcutaneous route and IV route. Um, it's Once the patients and families understand how to administer the drug, it's fairly easy. It does give the option for the patient to self-administer too, if they'd like. Um, and then again, there are various options amongst the opioids, not just morphine, um, that you can use to um, administer rectally. So contraindications or some precautions, um, it, this wouldn't be one that you would recommend in someone who doesn't have a functional anal sphincter, um, somebody with a colostomy. 
Um, I would proceed with caution and the risks have, or the benefits have to outweigh the risks in the setting of neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, um, and any anorectal diseases. Um, diarrhea is on here just because the presence of feces will decrease the absorption of the um, rectal route. Um, you know, this isn't something that patients really um, feel that it's a comfortable long-term route. So I think of the rectal route as more of a short-term um, days um, until we can figure out a better route for these patients um, in most cases. Um, I've listed a few uh, pearls of rectal administration. I just wanted to emphasize that the drug does need to be put, placed a finger's length into the rectum. Um, and um, if you're worried about that retention, if that's an issue, inserting the base side actually will help with the retention of the drug. Um, and then again, you can insert 10 milliliters of water um, via syringe if dissolution of the drug is an issue. Um, in the microenemas, we really do try to keep the volume of the drug to less than 60 milliliters, again, for the retention issue. So going back to our case, um, MB can actually have both of his medications, his morphine sustained release and morphine IR, administered rectally. Um, in this case, I may consider decreasing the dose of the sustained release just because I do want to avoid um, the excessive drowsiness. Um, I, I could also um, use the morphine suppository formulations rather than his actual pills if, um, you know, if I wanted to make sure I was managing the acute um, pains properly. Um, and again, this would be a short-term route until I was able to find another route for this patient to receive his opioids. Okay. So I'm going to pass it on now to Dr. Brock. And don't forget to introduce yourself. Good morning. I'm Dr. Cara Brock. I um, am a pharmacist. I teach at Roosevelt University College of Pharmacy. My practice site is mainly in hospice. I do a little bit um, of palliative care, but my main practice um, is hospice. So our next question to you is under the tongue. Um, so we're going to talk specifically about using morphine in the sublingual route. Um, so this case is a patient ST. ST is a 72-year-old female with squamous cell carcinoma of the pharynx on home hospice. Her pain has previously been controlled using morphine concentrate, 15 milligrams every four hours as needed. And she's averaging about three to four doses each day. Uh, you get a phone call from her caregiver who says she's no longer able to swallow. Previously, the caregiver has administered to patients morphine sublingually and wants to know if she can do this with this patient. So just a little overview of the sublingual route. Um, so the sublingual space is considered the bottom side of the tongue and the floor um, of the mouth. So it's kind of a small space. Um, but if we're comparing the amount of blood vessels and perfusion in the sublingual space compared to the skin, um, it's much more profuse with blood vessels and capillary bed to absorb drugs. Um, so if we're looking at the skin, the capillary beds are just around the follicles in the skin, whereas in the sublingual space, um, it encompasses the entire space. Um, absorption is by passive diffusion. So when we're talking about absorption of drugs um, throughout the GI tract, there are several methods for drugs to be absorbed. Um, in the sublingual space, it's only by passive um, diffusion. Um, so there's no carrier-mediated absorption or anything like that, um, just passive diffusion uh, in the sublingual space. 
Um, so we look at this as an alternate route in our patients who may not be able to swallow pills. Um, so maybe it's a temporary problem um, to administer sublingual um, medications. For this patient, um, it's likely to be something where she's not going to be able to take um, an oral, oral route anymore. So we need to find a different way to get that medication into her. Um, a fast onset, so we know that we use nitroglycerin very frequently, um, sublingual, fentanyl, um, and because of that perfusion, it's a very fast absorption and fast onset. And again, just like the rectal route, we're going to bypass first-pass metabolism. So when we're looking at absorption of drugs um, in the sublingual space, we're going to expect to see a bioavailability much closer um, to an IV administration versus an oral administration for morphine. Um, so keep that in mind when we talk about the studies. Um, that's going to be something that's illustrated in the studies that we look at. Um, so just a little bit of physiology of the sublingual space. So there's a superficial layer of epithelium um, within the sublingual space, and this is the barrier to absorption. Um, so this barrier limits the absorption of potentially harmful um, poisonous toxins, right? So, you know, as we're developing as human beings, we certainly don't want um, any toxins or poisons to be readily absorbed. So we have a barrier to protect us from that. And um, membrane coating granules, in addition to that epithelial epithelio epithelio layer, I can't talk so early in the morning, um, is what is a barrier to that passive absorption. Um, so I've, I've delivered content like this to nurses and I got a very interesting question. Um, why do we have to worry about lipophilicity? We'll talk on the next slide about um, sort of the physical properties of drugs in a sublingual route and we don't have to worry about that in rectal, right? Um, so Dr. Atayi just talked about the rectal route um, and morphine is readily absorbed that way. Um, but when we're looking at sublingual, um, we're going to see that it really isn't, and that's where these membrane coating granules come into play, um, where they are present in the sublingual space, um, but much less present in the rectal route. Um, so that's a very, I thought, very interesting. Um, sort of throughout the GI tract, there's different um, levels of the membrane coating granules. Um, so in the sublingual space, we do have more of those, um, so that that passive um, absorption of the morphine is limited by those. So there's two ways that drugs are absorbed sublingually. Um, so through the lipid route, so our cells are very um, full of lipids. The spaces in between the cells are about 50% lipids. Um, so our drugs that are very lipophilic are easily absorbed uh, by this route. The second way is the aqueous route. Um, so in addition to lipids being uh, between the cells, we also have little channels of water between them. Um, so drugs can be absorbed by passing through those little channels of water. Um, the caveat there is that the drug must be unionized. Um, so it can't be um, in the state where it's got positive and negative charges. It's got to be in its unionized form. So our requirements for a drug that, be, that can be absorbed um, sublingually is the drug must be at least moderately lipophilic um, so that it can be absorbed um, through the lipid layer, and it must be non-ionized um, at the pH of the sublingual space, which is about 6.0. So morphine now has two strikes against it. Um, it is the least lipid-soluble opioid, so it's definitely not going to be absorbed through the lipid um, layers, and it's about 90% ionized at physio physiologic pH. So it can't be absorbed through the lipid route, and it's not going to be absorbed um, through the aqueous route. So two strikes against morphine there. So I pulled some studies um, looking at morphine, pharmacokinetics, and bioavailability. 
Um, you will find more studies out there for uh, the buccal root also, but we focus mainly on sublingual. Buccal is very similar, um, but a little bit of differences. So we just pulled out um, five studies that look specifically at morphine, um, pharmacokinetics, and bioavailability studies. Um, so the first study is by Panuti um, from 1982, and they looked at time to peak concentration. Um, so they dosed morphine in patients and then subsequently drew um, plasma levels and measured them. Um, so they're measuring time to peak concentration and comparing that. Um, so the results of their studies were that plasma levels of oral, rectal, and sublingual morphine rise slowly, reach a peak at 30 minutes, and decrease in the fourth hour. Um, so if we're, if we're looking at that result, um, the absorption of the sub, sublingual morphine really mimics more the oral um, than the IV route, right? So if we're looking at um, sublingual absorption, we would expect to see that more mimic the IV route. Um, so reaching the peak in 30 minutes and decreasing in the fourth hour. That's what we expect to see with the oral route. Um, a second note from this study was that the SL route had a second peak in three hours. Um, so the authors postulated that there was sublingual um, absorption in the morphine, and then due to a slow swallow, um, that's why the patients had a peak at three hours. So they postulated that there was absor absorption, um, but also the drug was trickling down and being absorbed um, in the G further on in the GI tract. Um, this has not been rep replicated in any of the other studies. So there's no evidence um, in any of the other studies that there is actually um, sublingual absorption. The second study is by McQuay. And again, they looked at time to peak concentration in sublingual versus IV. Um, so a very similar study where the patient is dosed, they draw blood levels, and then measure the morphine in those blood levels over time. Um, and this study found no increase in bioavailability for sublingual compared to IV morphine. Um, so dosing the sublingual had no increased bioavailability. Um, the next study is Weinberg. Um, this study was interesting. They didn't measure plasma um, morphine levels. They actually had the patients, uh, they administered sublingual morphine to the patients, had, it, had the patient hold the medication in their mouth um, for a specified period of time, and then they spit it into a cup, rinsed their mouth, spit that again into a cup, and then they took that, measured it for how much morphine was in there, and then subtracted it from the dose they gave to the patient um, to postulate how much was absorbed. Um, so in this study, they showed that sublingual bioavailability of morphine was about 18%. Um, so again, thinking back um, to the pharmacokinetics, if, if a drug is being absorbed sublingually, we expect it to be much closer to IV. Um, and this is around what the oral would be. Um, next is Osborne in 1990. Um, this study was time to peak concentration. So again, drawing, administering the sublingual drawing blood levels and looking at them over time. Uh, results of this were that oral and sublingual con maximum concentrations were equivalent. Uh, they showed oral bioavailability of about 19.6% and the sublingual bioavailability was 21. Um, so looking at the oral dose and the sublingual dose, it was about the same. Um, so authors also note that using sublingual route may delay time to analgesia. So when, they're looking, when they were looking at the outcomes in these patients, the patients who were dosed sublingually actually had a longer time um, to the onset of analgesia. Um, in Davis in 1993, this study was a percent bioavailability, um, and they showed no difference in bioavailability between oral and sublingual route. So oral was 25, sublingual was 23. Um, so again, about the same. So 
sort of the two take-home points from these studies is number one, there's no evidence that morphine is absorbed sublingually. Um, it mostly, it closer mimics the oral administration. And the second thing is two of these studies showed a delay of onset to analgesia. Um, so if we're using morphine sublingually um, to treat an acute pain, we're looking at an extended time to pain relief in these patients. Um, so here's just a, a representation. So if we're looking at lipophilicity, is probably the most important um, characteristic of a drug um, for absorption sublingually. We know the first two, right, um, have commercial dosage forms that are sublingual or buccal, um, who, that are absorbed um, that way. But when we're looking at our other um, opioids, um, hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone, these are not really good candidates um, for sublingual absorption. Um, so just some pros and cons of the sublingual route. Um, it's cost effective. So our morphine um, is, is, you know, one of the cheaper drugs if we're looking at fentanyl, um, buprenorphine uh, for transmucosal delivery. Um, you know, morphine is going to be a little bit cheaper. These drugs are rapidly absorbed. Um, so if we're going to one of these commercial dosage forms, they're very rapidly absorbed, which means our patients are going to get a quick onset of pain relief. Um, some cons are if our patient is unable, to hold the drugs um, in the sublingual cavity. It's not going to be effective for them. Um, absorption can be dependent on saliva flow. Um, so if we're using a tablet, we need that space to be moist. Um, or even using a film, that space needs to be moist um, for the drug to be absorbed. Hydrophilic drugs are not absorbed um, by the sublingual route. Um, so just be aware of that. Uh, some patients in these studies reported an unpleasant taste. Um, so our patients may not be using um, the sublingual route if it's unpleasant to them. Um, patients can't eat, drink, or smoke uh, while the drug is being absorbed. Definitely should not be used if our patient has mucositis um, or blisters in the oral cavity. Um, and again, an important point, I think, um, for those of us who practice in palliative care and hospice, is if we're recommending to our patients or caregivers um, to place morphine sublingually, it will work eventually um, because there's going to be a slow swallow and trickle down the throat where it's going to be absorbed in the GI tract, but that's, that means that our patient is going to have a delay of onset to analgesia, so that's something that we have to keep in mind. So what are our options for this patient um, who can no longer swallow her tablets? Um, we can give her the morphine concentration solution sublingually um, as needed, but we have to recognize that sh she may have a delay of onset and analgesia. Um, we can schedule sublingual morphine. Um, so if we have a patient that we want to schedule an opioid in, perfectly fine to schedule sublingual um, because it's still going to be absorbed. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Um, so that's perfectly acceptable. Um, we could switch her to another opioid. Um, so something that's got a, some better sublingual absorption, or we could start looking into alternate routes. Um, so rectal, IV, subcutaneous, maybe a patch. Okay, so now we're going to move um, to the next uh, route, which is through your skin and specifically subcutaneous. So we'll start again with the case. As you can see, I work a lot with um, patients cancer. Um, so CJ is a 68 eight-year-old female with metastatic breast cancer with metastases to lung and worsening disease. Patient currently controlled on morphine IV PCA in the inpatient hospital setting at 0.5 milligrams an hour and one milligram IVQ 10-minute bolus. Um, at 
The current um, usage is about 15 doses a given um, out of 18 attempts in the last 24 hours. So the patient is really maintained well on this um, opioid regimen. Part of the reason that she was hospitalized is because she was having a hard time swallowing her pills and her pain wasn't well controlled. So now as she's getting transitioning to home with hospice, you'd like to come up with a good route. Um, originally for this patient, our team had said, let's try fentanyl patch, but then we came to find out that she had tried fentanyl patch in the past and it really didn't work well for her. Um, so we had to continue on to the next route um, available options. So, you know, we have a lot of patients um, where I work in the, um, in the hospital where they're finally controlled, this is working for them, they can um, enjoy and live whatever time they have left, and yet um, it, there's a barrier to going home because maintaining IV access at home is complicated, may not be feasible for some patients, um, too expensive, um, so especially at end-of-life care. Um, so the subcutaneous route um, is always a really good option in these patients. Um, the subcutaneous route can be given as intermittent bolus doses. Um, there are pumps um, that are different than the pumps that we use in the hospital um, that, are, that can allow these subcutaneous um, drugs to be administered as a continuous infusion or as patient-controlled analgesia. And in a survey of cancer patients, when they said, if you couldn't have the oral route, what would be your next preferred route? Um, most patients did prefer the subcutaneous route. So patient preference is for the subcutaneous route. Um, medications that can be administered through the subcutaneous route include morphine, hydromorphone, sufentanil, and methadone. Um, and so, and in both bolus and in continuous infusion. Um, so when you convert a patient from an IV dose to a sub-Q dose, you do start with one-to-one -one ratio on these patients. Um, what needs to be noted is that as the dose, and specifically as the volume increases, you're not going to get the same absorption. So if your patient is on morphine and they're over time requiring more opioids, then the best thing to do would be to transition that patient from morphine to a more potent opioid, like hydromorphone. Um, the skin reactions can be frequent, more frequent with methadone. You know, although I haven't seen this as much clinically um, in the literature, it reports that methadone is the one that can cause the skin reactions more with the subcutaneous route, and so you can concomitantly administer dextamethasone to avoid these skin reactions. So, what's really neat is, is as long as you can find subcutaneous fat to insert the needle and the, um, have the catheter be placed, it, it's okay. So even in cachectic patients in the abdominal area, we can still find um, subcutaneous fat. Um, febrile patients, hypotensive patients, all of these, um, you would think there might be a barrier, but it's not. Even in patients who have coagulation disorders, um, immunosuppression, or even edema, if you can find a place, obviously, where there's no active bleeding um, or uh, edematous, then the subcutaneous route would be okay and you would still get good perfusion. Where you would worry is if you can't find that route where you can ensure adequate perfusion. Now, as most of us would think, or I would think, that having a continuous infusion would be more effective for the patient. And although that does allow for more steady levels in the subcutaneous route, the, the literature 
thus far hasn't shown that intermittent boluses are any less effective than a continuous infusion of subcutaneous route. I would also imagine that a patient might prefer the continuous route as well, or continuous infusion. Um, the literature has also shown that um, morphine, as you wouldn't be surprised, is effective not only as analgesia, but for all the other indications of morphine in the pain, palliative care, and hospice settings, such as um, dyspnea that we would use it for. So as far as the adverse effects, um, there is um, a, commonly patients might have some mild skin reactions, but it's really rare that the patient would have um, severe reactions, um, skin reactions with the uh, subcutaneous catheter. Now, unlike the absorption, which is directly relevant to the dose and the volume of the drug, um, the skin reactions, there was, it was independent of dose, duration, gender, or age. Um, so hard to predict that one. Um, I imagine it is very high, though, um, even though I don't have the literature here with p patients who would already have different skin disorders. So something to watch for. Um, so in the literature most commonly um, quotes 25 and 27 gauge butterfly needles. At our institution, when we transition them to hospice, we use more 22 and 24 gauge needles. Um, you can see the needle um, and the catheter um, size over there. Most common areas, like I said, um, abdomen, thigh, upper arm, and shoulder, where you would need that subcutaneous um, fat. Um, patients can have the same catheter at the same site for seven days, as long as you don't have any severe skin reactions developing. Um, but after seven days, you do change the catheter and the site as well. So this is easy to use at home. We've come a long way with these subcutaneous pumps. And I talk about subcutaneous pumps separately from the um, Alaris pumps that we use in the hospital. Because in our hospital, and I'm not sure how it is at your institution, if you were to administer um, subcutaneous infusion with the Alaris IV pumps, the Alaris IV pumps have a safety mechanism where it would actually shut down with subcutaneous. So unfortunately, you can't take that same pump back and forth. Um, but there are great pumps, really um, advanced pumps um, that you can use and are used in the hospice settings. Um, this is, has a high acceptance rate with patients. There's a ton of literature um, in using subcutaneous route for safety and efficacy with morphine, hydromorphone, and other opioids. And again, um, the main adverse effect is the skin reaction, but overall it's pretty minor. Um, the cons or the, you know, the barriers to some of this is that you do have to be familiar with this route. And I find that not everybody is familiar with the subcutaneous route. Um, the volume of the drug has to be limited to three milliliters or less. And so again, you can get by this by using higher concentration, more potent opioids. Um, and it can be problematic in skin disorders. And, you know, again, the benefits have to outweigh the risk in um, severe immunosuppression. So going back to our case, we were able to contact the hospice that the patient was going to and that they were able to offer the subcutaneous route. Um, we did a one-to-one -one conversion, so kept the patient on the same dose, which made it really nice. The main change we made, as you may uh, be aware, is that the time to peak with IV is 10 minutes with the opioids, uh, but with the subcutaneous route, it is delayed to 30 minutes, so we just made the lockout time on our patient's PCA to 30 minutes. 
Um, with the current morphine dose and how much she was requiring, we didn't have to use a higher concentration morphine or convert to hydromorphone, but that is something that um, we knew that somebody would have to keep an eye on in the future. Okay, now I'm going to talk about uh, the topical route of administration of opioids. Um, this is sort of a little bit different um, than the previous three routes, um, where we're looking at uh, topical morphine for the treatment of painful ulcers. Um, so we're not looking to get blood concentrations of morphine, but looking to use the morphine topically um, to treat painful ulcers. So this case is PC. She's a 65-year-old female. She's on hospice. Um, she's got metastatic vulvar cancer. She's had previous treatment. Uh, which left her with ulcers um, pretty much from her um, urethra to her anus. She's on home, she's on, she's admitted to inpatient hospice. Her pain is uncontrolled. Um, so we start a hydromorphone drip on her um, to treat her pain. Started at half a milligram every hour, titrated, titrated over several days, um, and her pain is not fully relieved. Um, she started to become a little somnolent. Um, so we didn't really want to go up on the hydromorphone dose anymore. But she was still in significant pain when she had um, diaper changes, when she was moved in bed. She wasn't able to get out of bed, um, sit up in a wheelchair. Um, so her quality of life um, was suffering due to this pain that she had. So just some background. 10% um, of hospitalized patients have pressure sores. And 26% of hospice admissions, these patients have pressure sores. Um, so this is something that's pretty frequent um, in the patients I see in the hospice. Ulcer pain is difficult to treat. Um, so we do try systemic opioids, but sometimes it's just not enough, um, like in this patient. Um, when our patients are having pain from these ulcers, really the treatment would be to heal the ulcer um, to relieve the pain. But in our hospice patients, that's usually not very realistic. Um, may or may not be in palliative care patients, uh, but really we need to, to look at some other um, options for these patients. So in our normal peripheral tissues, we don't have opioid receptors. Um, and they're in rat models that mimic um, human skin. There, it has been shown that when there is presence of inflammation and tissue damage, um, the opioid receptors are upregulated. Um, so that's why we're looking at morphine to treat these painful ulcers. So there's a really good um, meta-analysis from 2013, which gathered, um, they got 27 studies included with their um, inclusion criteria. Their inclusion criteria was a patient with a painful ulcer who was receiving systemic opioids. Um, so the data they looked at, it was different. Um, so they also included, they didn't just include um, studies, they included case reports. Um, those of us who practice in palliative medicine um, and hospice know it's really hard um, to do these studies. It's hard to find evidence-based medicine sometimes um, for the things that we're doing. Um, so in this meta-analysis, case studies were included. Um, so the data they looked at, and it varied um, with all the studies and um, case reports that they looked at, um, but when it was there, they compiled it into their um, analysis. Um, so looking at the cause of the wound, wound size, the opioid used in the patient, um, titration details and the frequency of application of the topical morphine, um, any local and systemic side effects, systemic analgesic used in combination with the topical, um, outcomes and any author comments. Um, so the results of this 
um, oral and parenteral opioid dose, doses are not sufficiently relieving pain um, in these patients with um, ulcers. The most common preparation, and you know, of course, in these studies and case reports, it varied, um, but the most common was morphine 10 milligrams. Um, so this would be an injection solution mixed in, into intracyte gel. Um, so intracyte gel is a wound dressing, which is a water-based wound dressing, um, which is made to absorb um, any moisture from the wounds. So the mixture of the intracyte and morphine, or whichever base in whichever opioid they used, um, was applied to wounds, and um, the wound was loosely dressed. The uh, dressing changes occurred anywhere from once a day to three times a day um, in these patients, and there's you know, a wide variety um, depending on the study and the case report. Um, it also varies on the condition of your patient. So for this patient that we had, um, she was also incontinent of bowel, uh, bowel and bladder, um, so she had frequent diaper changes. Um, so we were applying that with every diaper change. Um, if you have a patient who doesn't need to have um, the dressing changed that frequently, um, then you would put it on and leave it on. Um, so actually there were three studies that showed topical opioids were ineffective. Um, these studies though were in patients who had uh, venous or arterial ulcers. Um, and the authors postulated that there's not really an inflammatory component um, in these ulcers, so that's likely why the topical opioid was not working um, in these patients because they didn't have that upregulation up of the opioid receptors um, because there is not um, an infla inflammatory component. So the results of this uh, meta-analysis was that when we combine topical opioids with systemic opioids in these patients, they get superior pain relief. Um, also adding on the topical opioid minimizes the amount of systemic opioid we need to use in these patients. Um, so it reduces how much we need to use, which means it reduces the side effects um, that the patients will experience. Um, and there's also some good studies about the stability um, of morphine in the intracyte gel. Um, so there's evidence out there um, for this mixture to be made and that the morphine remains stable um, in the gel. Um, so our pros, uh, we're providing superior pain relief to our patient, right, and that's our goal. Um, reducing the need for systemic opioids, always a goal for us too, right? So we wanna relieve our patient's pain um, with the least amount of drug and the least amount of adverse effects. Um, and the most data reported is in pressure and malignant wounds. Um, so we know we have pretty good evidence for that. Um, cons is we don't really know the systemic absorption. Um, so when we're applying this gel to a patient with an open wound, we don't really know how much of that opioid um, is being absorbed. Um, some local side effects. So some patients um, reported some local side effects, and this is not effective in a patient who's got a venous or arterial ulcer. So what do we do with our patient PC? Would you try this on her? Sure, right, it's not gonna hurt. Um, so we did, and it worked. Um, so she was able to get out of bed, she was able to get into a wheelchair and go outside. Um, so her quality of life really did improve from this, definitely. So we put together this chart for you guys, um, really just for your um, information. So looking at all of the different routes, so the subcutaneous rectal, sublingual, transdermal, and topical, um, and sort of the, the conditions to consider when we're looking at these routes for patients. Um, so this slide is for your reference. So our question to you now 
is, which would you prefer? So we'll do a show of hands. How many of you would prefer the rectal route? Not any take. One. <laughs> sure, sure. Depends on what's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> How about subcutaneous? Yeah. <laughs> and sublingual? Definitely not morphine, but maybe the ones that are actually absorbed. And topical. And top topical? Sure, I would, yeah, want, I would want that also. Yep. What questions do you have for us? So we didn't have intracite at my hospice, so I went to the hospital pharmacy and asked them, which, what aqueous gel do you have? And we used what they had. Mm -hmm. Cover it. back on. Um, you know, if, it's, um, if it avoids the first pass metabolism, then it goes directly into the systemic um, system, so you don't have that delayed transit time um, as, as much as you would think. Um, so, as long as it, so what it is, is you're pretty much, um, and, and again, there's so much variability in the literature. Um, what I imagine would happen as average times is that you get some immediate and some delayed, but you would get some effects overall with it. Uh, what, I, what I would imagine is, and again, uh, the literature was varying, but um, you would get a little bit, like you would orally, some of it gets uh, immediately absorbed and into the system, and some of it could um, be there for the full 12 hours. The extended release is the, is the tablet, though. So it's not the fact that the tablet is moving through the GI tract, it's that the tablet itself is releasing little bits of morphine over time. So regardless if that tablet is moving or if it's in the rectum in one place, that extended release dosage form is still releasing that morphine. Um, so the transit, that you know, the swallow through the gut is not what makes it extended release, it's the actual tablet. No, no, yeah, yeah. Thank you, I wanted to make sure I was. without getting first-pass metabolism, so that... Too far in, correct. More than a finger's length, you would... Yes. I, I will have to look that one up. I don't work commonly with pediatrics, but that's a great question. And yes, just to confirm, the literature does show that the extended release um, I, with what Dr. Brock said, does continue to stay as an extended release, even administered rectally. So thank you. That is a good point about insertion, though. Um, so it's the lower veins of the rectum that uh, bypass for first pass, or 
that bypass first pass metabolism. Right. Um, so you want to make sure you're getting it further in. Um, you know, as Dr. Atey said, we do one-to-one -one conversion, but if you insert that tablet or the suppository too low, then you're missing that first pass metabolism. Um, and your patient's gonna be, you know, probably seeing those side effects that they saw in those studies. The data doesn't show that. So the data shows, even with the tablets too, um, that once they're inserted, they, they typically don't move. <laughs> right. So how scientific right. is that really? Right. Yeah. Right. And that's where all the variability comes from patient yeah. to patient. Yeah. <laughs> right. And again, you know, the rectal route is not a lot. It's going to be, it's going to provide some drug. You do reduce the dose on the sustained release to make sure you're not getting the side effects. But it's not a really a long-term route. It's just to, in the moment when you can't get the patient to get their opioids any other way. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sure. No. A patient preference issue, right. Right. Yeah. Even healthcare providers, like I, you know, I work in hospice, so there's a lot of times where I recommend the rectal route and the nurses are uncomfortable. Right. You know? Yeah. Or the patients may be uncomfortable if they can't self-administer. They don't want their family members to have to do that for them. So yes, it, it's a cultural mm -hmm, patient sure. preference. Yep. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much.